My name is Bruce. I warned you not to ask me here. I got to do the next part. I see. I'm, my name is Bruce. And I'm an alcoholic. Uh, good God. Somewhere out there in that ocean of smiley faces is a guy named Scott who just bought me this drink and said he was going to pray for me because I'm scared out of my mind. Now, it says in the big book that, you know, what do we do with our fears? It says, uh, you write them down on paper. Then you ask God to remove them and ask to show you what you can be. I don't have a pencil. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just going to tough this one through. You know, I, you people here are so optimistic and so happy, and I'm really glad you invited me here. Uh, but to ask somebody at my age a year in advance to come here. <laughs> Boy, were you shooting for the moon, you know? Now, I, I don't want to be embarrassing anybody, but I want to tell you why I'm here, because I'm here by mistake. Uh, I got a telephone call last September uh, at night. I was home, and this person said, uh, Hi, is this Bob? And I said, No, my name is Bruce. And they said that they were calling South Carolina or North Carolina, one or the other. And then I said, No, this is Bruce. I'm in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And this voice said, Are you a friend of Bill W.'s? You know, and I, what are you what are you going to sell me if you're going to call up and tell me something like that? You know, and they're actually they're calling South Carolina, and I said yes, I was guardedly, and they said, well, then I would do. <laughs> and I was asked to come here and speak. I didn't think this was for real, so I called this person a week later. I said, is this for real? She said. Uh, don't take yourself too damn seriously. <laughs> and I thought, this got to be, you know. So I, I sent her a tape, because I've only done this three times. And I was just telling Dick, he's, he's been there every time. And I'm not sure whether it's getting any better. I'm not sure it's getting any worse. I, I'm still giving it a try. But, and so here I am, you know. And someone else, John called me up uh, a couple of months ago, I guess it was. And he, he made me feel more comfortable, and uh, we talked about it a little bit. And I said to him, how do you know anything about me if you're just, you know, taking me for, you know, as a person from South Carolina who actually lives in Scranton, Pennsylvania? He said, we don't care. <laughs> and I said, well, you certainly must care about, you know, I must have to have some kind of qualification to be here. And we decided the only qualification was that I'd be sober here this afternoon. <laughs> and I am. Well, I cry a lot, uh, and so uh, I don't cry over uh, uh, unhappy things. I cry when I'm full of joy, and I have trouble when I talk if I start getting too joyous. And so uh, I brought a friend of mine with me, and we've had a 10-hour meeting on the way out here, and he was to make sure I didn't drink on the way here. Uh, as Paul over here, 
And Paul's celebrating 12 years of sobriety uh, in uh, November. Uh, that chokes me up because it makes me feel good. Uh, stop it, Bruce. Now, you people do things a little differently than we do in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You say the, uh, the, they took it away. Well, anyway, I, uh, I, I got sober. I took my last drink in uh, out west in uh, the Rocky Mountains. And there were these uh, West Texans around the meetings that used to, and when I first went to meetings, and they would do this most bewildering little exercise. They'd say, but for the grace of God, the fellowship of this program, and not had the reason or choose to take a drink for the last 10,471 days. <laughs> and I said, listen to them and think, good, yeah, is this what these people do? You know, they sit around and memorize how many days they've been sober, as if that was, you know, that's how you're going to get uh, well, I guess. And, uh, I just told you my sobriety date. Uh, now, you can take the next hour if you want to. You've got to remember the leap years. <laughs> and you'll figure out that I got sober at five minutes after five Rocky Mountain time on January 31st, 1971, a week after Bill died. And I always use the word thankful, uh, because to me, as a child of chaos, I was told most of my little child life that I was the most ungrateful little, uh, you know, whatever they had, my father had words for, that he had ever experienced. And they're always trying to make me feel shamed by telling me I'm ungrateful. So I don't like that word. So thankful comes out of my heart. Grateful, it seems always to be a response to the people who didn't th like the way I was behaving. So I'm a very grateful alcoholic. Now, I think I just... Oh, I had a sponsor. Uh, his name was Frank. And uh, I believe Frank is still alive, but I have lived in eight different cities since I got sober. So I've had to get a new sponsor each time I move to a new uh, environment. And I use the fifth step to describe for me what a sponsor should be. Because it tells in me in that chapter, uh, that, uh, or in that step, that I'm, in the sixth chapter, that I'm supposed to have somebody whom I can trust, somebody who is a friend, somebody who will be a partner, someone who will not try to change my plan. That describes somebody, uh, that I, I would really like to share my, my experience and strength and hope with at a very personal level. And so that takes care of the, uh, what you say at the beginning of the meeting. Oh, you do one other thing that's different. And I discovered that. I finally figured it out. When you say the Lord's Prayer, you do it a little different than I, or we do in Scranton. You say, give us this day our daily bread. Then you pause. And I'm like the guy said, Marty said last night, I'm a pig. Uh, I don't wait for my daily bread, obviously. And I, so the, both times you caught me, I said, give us this day our daily bread. And I said, our daily bread immediately. And I was talking all by myself because you were all standing there listening to me say our daily bread. And, I, and you got to me because my doctor told me I weigh too much, too. But that's that's. All. But, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is very much the same everywhere that I've ever gone. Uh, there's places back in the 70s that didn't say hi when you uh, announced yourself. And I remember I went to a meeting once in Nebraska. Uh, early on, and I, the chairman said, my name is Bill, I'm an alcoholic, and I said, hi, Bill, from the back of the room, and they all looked at me like I was the strangest person that ever lived. 
But I think that most of us now say hi, and that's fun because that was the only way I could get this machine oiled today is by telling you hi twice while they knock the table off. <laughs> uh, I got to get started on this pretty soon, don't I? I uh, I'm catching my breath. May I, I may get into this in a minute or two. I, I want to make one statement that when I'm talking, uh, and this happened to me years ago, I joined uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I had my last drink in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And the me- I never, I was almost, uh, I think, about four years before I went to a speaker meeting. You call it a lead. Uh, in the beginning of the book, in the foreword of uh, my book, it says that uh, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another. And I've always done Alcoholics Anonymous very much one-on-one. And uh, I'm not uh, accustomed to speaking, you know, obviously, but I do it. And uh, what happens to me, and, and you can, I hope you all have this experience because you deserve it. Uh, come up here and look at these faces and be scared out of your mind. Uh, <laughs> When, when, when I'm speaking, I, I do try to invoke the presence of God. But what happened, and I do try to talk from my heart. But my heart's not the same as your heart. And uh, I'm going to say some things because I'm talking, uh, I'm not talking from script, I just talk. And I may say some things you disagree with. I may say some things you don't buy at all. But they're my approach to this book. The wonderful part about the big book is that I have seen Literally, hundreds of people read what's in that big book and have totally different experiences. And uh, they all get well, sober, happy, and live good, productive lives. The way I do it may not be the way you do it. But I think do it is the important thing. And uh, I, where I live, there are five Bruce's. And I notice a lot of you people have strange names, too, because nobody can use the last name in Alcoholics Anonymous, so we get these really weird nicknames to distinguish between all the different Toms and all the different all the other people. And you've got them around here, because I've met about ten of you that have really weird names. Uh, well, in my community, we have a, one Bruce is called Dumpster Bruce, because he always used to say he ate out of the dumpster when he was on the street. Now, he's sober eight years, and he's trying to shake that name. <laughs> but, you know, since my name's Bruce, I don't want that title, because I didn't eat out of dumpsters. But when I first got to Scranton, I came there with uh, about 22 years sobriety, and uh, uh, there are a lot of skeptics around who had 18 years sobriety that wondered, we don't know that he's got 22 years sobriety. <laughs> and uh, I always, uh, I've, ever since I went through the steps with my sponsor in Denver years ago, I've always taken the attitude that if I go to any meeting anywhere in the world, whatever I hear, you can raise any subject you want to at the beginning of the meeting, but I will relate that subject into the text of the big book, and I will always talk out of this book. So, my props are, uh, I have a little big book, now I got the next little big book, and I got my uh, regular big book, and then I got this one for people who can't see when they get older. <laughs> but I like big books, and so my nickname in Scranton is Big Book Bruce. <laughs> and... Uh, I, they didn't like me very well when I got there because big book Bruce, and whenever I'd speak, they very big book Bruce. But I've been there for seven years now, and they say it with a lot more affection. And uh, 
And uh, John called me recently and he said, we have a lot of big book thumpers in Cincinnati. And uh, if you stop to think of it, because I know of the people who don't like the big book, there's a lot of people who don't like the big book, called people who read the big book, big book thumpers in a derogatory sense, but they f- are not old enough to remember the movie Bambi. <laughs> and if you remember who Bambi's best friend was, he was the cutest little rabbit. He sat on the log and he was called Thumper. Thumper. And there's nothing wrong with Thumper. He was a good kid, you know. He's a nice little rabbit. And there's nothing wrong with the big book. Uh, it's curious to me. Uh, you know, and I, I like to use these because there's things I don't want to mistake what it says in here. But uh, on the very first page of the big book, I want to read this because it, it's where I come from. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women, both sexes, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And then in italics, to make it, I think that's to emphasize a point, it says, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, is the main purpose of this book. That's pretty exact, precisely. Then I hear over the years, there's no do's or don'ts, it's just a suggested program. And I don't think that's the way it was written. I think that, for me, every step in that book has a prayer. Every step in that book has action. And if I know what the prayers are, and if I know what the actions are, I don't look at AA as 12 steps to climb and jump off the top. I look at it like a clock face. There's 12 numbers on the clock. And the 12th step says I'm supposed to practice the principles, which are the steps, in all my affairs. That means if I keep this level and keep myself level-headed, I have access to all these steps for any problem that I've got through any part of my day and any part of my life. That makes a lot more sense to me, because climbing up a bunch of steps and parachuting off the top as you get to be my age, isn't that's that's a stupid thing to do. <laughs> All right. So I'm Big Book Bruce, and here I am in Cincinnati. Or No, I'm not either. I'm in Kentucky. <laughs> and I'm talking to a whole lot of happy people. And so I should tell you about, you know, my sister. I have a sister and a brother. Uh, I'm the only one in the family that joined this organization. In fact, I have been here now for all these years, and my older brother is glad I go to that, whatever that place is. But recently at church, uh, he, uh, his minister preached a sermon on two people called Bill and Bob and said that they had started the most significant spiritual event of the 20th century. So he called me up. He said, do you belong to that group? I thought after 28 years he might have guessed what group I belonged to. <laughs> but I think that was a pretty, uh, you know, it, that convinced him that I'm in the right place probably. My sister has no idea what this is about. So I, she lives in Ithaca, New York, and I, she, we talked last week, and she said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Cincinnati. She said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to an AA convention. And they've asked me to speak. And she said, what in the world would you talk about? <laughs> Have you ever thought of that? What do they talk about? Last night I heard one guy say he had bisexual uh, relationships with a zebra. <laughs> and a lady told me about some friend she had that ate the heads off frogs. <laughs> well, what, what's left for me? <laughs> ah. 
a friend of mine before I came here told me what you do is you go and you tell them how you puked and then you found God. <laughs> and uh, I think, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to be smart. Uh, I, I think that's the truth of it. That's exactly the truth of it. Uh, I still have vivid memories of every time I vomited because they were so much the same. I know what it feels like. I vomited on the sides of cars in the wintertime. I vomited in my, uh, you know, on my bedroom floor. I vomited all over the place. And I was sick. And I was a sick alcoholic and I had no idea what was wrong with me because I started out drinking when I was just a, a 14. Uh, I got drunk on a New Year's Eve when parents were gone and uh, I was with four friends from school and when I was drunk, they looked at me and they said, Bruce, you're drunk. And the attention that I got, the rush that I got of being recognized as somebody who was doing something uh, important uh, stuck with me. <laughs> Here's finally something that I could distinguish myself with. And so I did. And uh, my father was a coach at a military school. And uh, because of uh, his position there, I was able to, uh, if I worked in the kitchen, go to this school and wash dishes and spend four years with every rich, delinquent child in America. <laughs> and I learned how to drink more. And then I drank enough in my senior year where they threw me out. But since my father worked there, they got me right back in again. I, and I followed this pattern. I don't know about the rest of you, but my adolescence, I can remember. Uh, I think uh, Marty last night talked a lot about the way I felt as an adolescent, and there was no one that I could express it to. My brain was on fire. I had no, you know, no idea how to be a human being, and yet I had to pretend every day that I was one. People were always telling me to do this, do that, and, and become something that I wasn't. And I wasn't sure who I was in the first place. But it was a horrible nightmare, and I certainly was a, a candidate for Alcoholics Anonymous by the time I was 18. I was, well, I'm in Ohio. No, I'm not. I'm in Kentucky. The first time I went to jail was in Toledo when I was 18. I was picked up for vagrancy and being drunk, and it didn't mean a thing to me. It was something that I could brag and boast on to my friends, and it was right, right back to the Monopoly game. You did what was wow, yeah, that's great, and and that that was what defined me because I couldn't do anything else, and. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan, and, and they kicked me out for drinking. And, it, and what a, a comfort it was to find out years later that so did Dr. Bob. <laughs> and uh, now I've got my heroes, but my heroes today are quite different than they were when I was 18. I continued to drink uh, through college. I got in another college, and... Uh, my college experience was all centered around alcohol, and I lived in, I, I, I lived in an era, you know, and I realize I'm getting older than other people are now, but uh, drinking was different, as it seems to me, as I observe new people coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to love to sing and get raunchy when I was drunk, and so did all the people I was with. There was a, a, inter, there was a national college uh, drinking fraternity. Uh, you were tapped. What a wonderful word. Uh, in the middle of the night, they would pick the three or the 13 most distinguished drinkers on the Syracuse University campus to belong to the senior men's honorary of, of Kappa Beta Phi. And the greatest achievement of my life, and it was in the paper when I got married years later, that I was the president called, <laughs> called Keg of Kappa Beta Phi at Syracuse University. And my mother used to wonder, 
why I bragged about that. So did a whole lot of other people. I'm sure Al-Anon people would understand, but I don't. To this day, why the destruction of my soul, the destruction of my being, was the most the, the thing that I most celebrated. And uh, it went on. I, I met a woman. I got in a fight with my father when I graduated from college. I went in the Army and got the GI Bill so I could go to college. And in the Army, I drank a lot, too. And then in our argument, I went uh, my father drank a lot. He never joined Alcoholics Anonymous, so in the book it says I can't designate that he's an alcoholic. He has to decide for himself. But in this argument, I said I was going to leave the East Coast. and We were up in Syracuse, and I was going to the West Coast as far away as I could get from him. And I was never going to come back here uh, to the East Coast again. And uh, he told me that I could not make it, which challenged me. And that's what always was my motivation to do something, is have somebody tell me I couldn't. So I went out to Portland, Oregon, and he was quite right. I only had $100 when I left, and I, I slept in the car on the way out, and I had $10 left when I got out there, and I looked up a woman that I had met in the Army. I knew she taught school out in Portland, Oregon, and she did. Uh, she invited me to dinner because I, I had expected that she would because I didn't know how I was going to eat dinner that night. And uh, she took me to dinner the next night and the next night, and uh, then we got married a month later. <laughs> She was uh, from uh, Manhattan, Kansas, and uh, didn't look uh, too good. I was, uh, had graduated as an architect, and it didn't look too good in Manhattan, Kansas, and I didn't want to live in the same town with her father and mother. So we moved to Denver, Colorado, so that her mother and father could come visit us from time to time and see their grandchildren. And I continued to drink. Her mother and father and my wife, all, all of them thought that I was a very funny person because I was always drunk. We went out to dinner one night in Denver at the Brown Palace Hotel, which is a very nice hotel in Denver, and I was passed out cold in the, uh, in the men's room, and they thought that was one of the great stories that they could tell at Christmas time when we all got together, <laughs> how my father-in-law found me in the men's room at the Brown Palace Hotel in Denver. And it went on that way, and it was uh, really pretty disgusting by any terms that I could see it now, but that was the pattern of my life. I was in an architectural practice that uh, three other guys who since have become very successful, and I snooped one night in the drawer and found out that they, all the rest of them were forming a partnership and my name wasn't on the stationery. So I asked them why, and they said because I drank too much. So I fixed them. I opened my own office. I had no idea what I was doing. I was motivated totally by revenge, by resentment. Everything in my life was, uh, was organized around such thoughts. I was developing into a real full-blown alcoholic. And then uh, I started doing ski resorts, and I was away from home a lot. And uh, I thought it was uh, part of my work to become drunk with all the people that I was working for, and I did. And uh, I was successful being drunk, if any of you have ever experienced that. It's, uh, it happens to a lot of people uh, that alcohol doesn't know. You can't notice the alcoholism because... Everybody that you surround yourself with is drinking, and that's part of uh, the environment of meeting people and networking, whatever they call it. And uh, that's what I did. And I, and I got a lot of money for being absolutely stupid. Uh, I don't want to tell you the buildings that I designed because you wouldn't dare go into them. Anyway, it kept on going, and uh, I got lonelier and lonelier, and I think we heard a little about that this weekend. And uh, uh, I started drinking in bar. There was an Albany Hotel bar in uh, uh, Denver, 
And the bartender knew that about the 15 of us that sat in there were all businessmen, didn't want to talk to anybody, and we didn't talk about uh, anything to each other. We didn't discuss ball scores or anything. We just sat there to get wasted, and we did. And that was the last year I drank. And uh, I I had some personal troubles at home, and I had to go see a psychiatrist uh, because of my two daughters. And uh, that was the end of my drinking because uh, he just thought that I was manic depressive and that what I really needed was some Valium. <laughs> and so I started taking Valium, and I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but I kept it in my pocket, and I'd munch a couple like Tic Tacs and say, am I depressed? Ooh, I have another one. <laughs> and by the time that I started drinking around 3 o'clock in the afternoon over at the Albany Hotel, the, the mixture of the two somehow started swelling my tongue. And I, I had clients that I could talk to on the telephone. I used, I used to be able to fake it and uh, talk to them drunk and sound sober. But with that mixed up in there, and I'd so drunk, I, they'd say on the other end of the telephone, they'd say, Bruce, you're drunk. And I was. And uh, I lost a lot of my work, and uh, things didn't look too good. But uh, I, my wife went into the hospital. We, I kited a, a, a new home for our environment for ourselves with a, a do-it-yourself kit of fixing up an old house. And she stepped on a nail and had to go into the hospital for a week with the phlebitis uh, going through her system. And I invited all my very worst alcoholic friends to a party. And the one who stayed with me for three days... Uh, and I drank everything we could. We passed in and out of blackouts. He got on the telephone and started uh, calling up people saying we were, had just killed people and doing all kinds of dumb things. He, his, he told his wife he was going to kill himself. And we were getting all this attention, but we wouldn't let anybody in the house. So when this fiasco was over, I had my last drink. I drank a glass of scotch, walked out of the house, and got arrested for public intoxication. And they took me to jail. And I'd been to jail before. I, I was, I'd been in the Toledo jail, and I thought, yeah, that was funny. And I'd been to a couple others, too, but for things. But uh, that last that was my last drink, that dirty jelly jar full of scotch. And I went into a jail, and uh, I believe, and I, I, I don't know how to express this to, it publicly, but there was something that came into my consciousness. I was there for two days. And I believe today in my heart and soul that it was God speaking to me that said, Bruce, don't drink. I call that a spiritual experience. A man came in, a minister that I didn't know uh, who had been offended by my friend, came in to talk to me and said, what do you want, Bruce? And I broke down and cried, which I've talked to several people that those kind of tears when you when you're finally making this the end the over are I think God's tears and uh, I said I want to live like other people I didn't know what I was talking about because I've come to realize I don't want to live like other people but um, I I thought that's what I wanted at the time and so uh, I had the message from God I believe this that told me not to drink and I didn't take a drink for six weeks. And I was in a guy's house. I haven't had a drink since, but uh, I was in a guy's house. I didn't go to any AA meetings. I wasn't, went to visit a friend of mine. Uh, and an insurance salesman came to his house, and the two of them were talking. And we were talking about alcohol because I was so into this thing for the first time in my life, not having had a drink for six weeks. I was shaking, and I was going through withdrawal symptoms. Boulder, uh, at that time in 71, didn't have a detoxification center. Uh, 
And this is before the American Medical Association had called alcohol a disease, or alcoholism a disease, so there wasn't any place to go unless you wanted to pay for it. And I certainly didn't have any money left to pay for anything. This man heard us talking about alcohol, and he looked at me when my friend got up to go in the john to relieve himself, and he said, looked at me and he said, uh, are you an alcoholic? And uh, a stranger asking you that question when you don't have any idea whether you are or not because you don't even know what an alcoholic is really disarmed me. And I thought what a, it was a very di- disturbing question. And I said, why do you ask me that? And he looked into my eyes, and I've, I've, I've learned that eyes are very important to all of us. Uh, it shows what we feel, the despair and joy. And he said that I had the most hysterical eyes he'd ever seen in my life. And he said, have you got some time? And I said, sure. It was in the morning. And so he, he got me in his car and said we'd pick up my car later. He drove me down to Denver, and I went to my first AA meeting at York Street, which is a, uh, if any of you have ever been there, it's a great big old mansion in downtown Denver, Brownstone. It sounds like the, the building this guy here was building. They played cards in the basement. They served coffee on the first floor. They got a meeting every two hours on the second floor, and I never did find out what they do up on the third floor. <laughs> um, uh, and I went there, and I went to this meeting, and there were about 20 people sitting around a, a table. And... Uh, they, they do this all over the country. And they said, Who, is there anyone here for their first meeting? They don't quite all, all separate it. Or visiting from out of town. Well, okay. You know, I'm from Boulder. I'm, I'm visiting. Uh, <laughs> and then they told me I was the most important person in the room. And have, have you ever been told that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, we all have been told that. And we are. <laughs> and don't ever argue with any alcoholic about who's the most important. Uh, but... I thought they meant it, you know, and so, <laughs> so I, um, it was a discussion meeting and there was a chairman up there and I interrupted their meeting uh, quite a few times until they finally told me to shut up. <laughs> they said, Bruce, there are other people at this meeting that would like to share. The thought had never dawned on me. I thought that they probably all got together. I'm the most important person in the room and this guy had brought me all the way down from Boulder. So... <laughs> What are they doing here? You know? And they were weird looking people because this is 1971 uh, at a time where Colorado was just full of hippies and all those strange cults. Were they going to shave my head and put a, a pink bathrobe on me and send me out to the airport and sell flowers? It was a thought that certainly came by me. I had no idea what they were doing. And I went home and I, uh, my wife said, where have you been? And I said, I was at an AA meeting. Oh, she said, that sounds pretty interesting. What's that all about? And I said, I tried to describe it to her. I said, I, I really can't describe it. They'll sit there and they say, I'm Mary Ann. And then everybody says, hi, Mary Ann. And she says, oh. <laughs> and this is going to be good for you. And uh, she was not a good big fan of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, she really believed in her heart that my association with a group like that was uh, tearing us apart socially and that I had just demeaned myself beyond all uh, recognition. And I heard her uh, once tell her mother in the kitchen when she was visiting that right after I started going to AA meetings that, uh, you know Bruce and his sense of drama. This week he's decided to be an alcoholic. (laughs) And he's doing it just to embarrass me. And they both agreed that that's probably what I was doing. And... um, I went to my first meeting in Boulder, and it was. This is the truth. I, I went up there that night, and a woman named Ruth 
uh, I was scared to go in there because I was home territory now, and I was going to run into some people that I knew. And uh, I did. There were a couple of people in there that I knew. And there was a woman named Ruth that was crying, and she said, I don't understand. I don't understand. She was new. So was I, but I wasn't going to tell them this time because I didn't want to be the most important person in this room. <laughs> and then they all, there were a lot of people who were whining and complaining and talking and all that stuff. A typical AA meeting. And there were people that were giving good solutions, but I didn't know what a good solution was. And so I, they told me if I didn't like that meeting, to come back on Thursday night. We only had two meetings in town. And, and uh, mon- uh, we had one on Tuesday and one on Thursday. And so I came back on Thursday night, and Ruth had, had uh, overdosed on pills and killed herself. And I thought, wow, this is heavy-duty stuff. And uh, a guy at the second meeting said his name was Joe and his wife was cheating on him and that he was all upset and everybody counseled him. And uh, I went back on Tuesday night and Joe had blown his brains off. And this is in a group of people. There's only 20 of them there. And that scared me. It really did scare me. And uh, I know I've been in AA long enough now to know this happens. Uh, It happens a lot. We're a group of people who have to deal with tragedy all around us. And we have to recognize and celebrate the people who, who stay sober, who, who do the steps, who, who put it together because there is help here. Uh, some people aren't going to make it. And I think, it, you know, I do believe God, uh, providence does work on you. And I think that that's, was set up for me to get my attention. But it didn't get my attention enough because I, the years I spent in military school it made me a terrible cynic. I didn't want to be there. And so I, I, I grew up through my adolescence hating everybody and everything and, and getting a sense of humor that's really kind of sick. And I still got that sense of humor. But Dr. Bob's last talks uh, said uh, that uh, if we're going to... He only mentioned three things, but one of them that always struck me as being important. If we're going to use that error, remember the tongue, use it with love and compassion toward other people. Uh, and he also, in his talk there in Detroit, uh, made the comment that the big book is based to a large extent on the book of James, which is biblical, Sermon on the Mount, which is Emmett Fox's book, and then 1 Corinthians 13. So I went home and I read uh, that book of James, and there's a lot in there. It says, uh, faith without works is dead. That's a very important part of the program. There's another thing it says in there that the strongest weapon, the greatest weapon a man is given by God as an attribute is his tongue. And that you can slash people, uh, a tongue can do more damage than any other weapon you got. And that's me, you know. And here I am, born and and well-developed with a sense of humor that's, you know, a little bit sick. And uh, what am I going to do about it? And I've had to use the program to use humor, but to use it with kindness, love, and tolerance. Every chapter in the book talks about that. Uh, How... Love and tolerance of other people is the most important thing that, that we're supposed to always overriding all else. And I tell people who go to meetings, uh, there was a young woman that I've met recently who had been going to meetings for a year and she called me up and she said, uh, I can't stand it anymore. Everybody says the same thing at every meeting I go to. It's the same people saying the same thing. And I said, you've got to learn how to be tolerant. Why not have fun with it? I told her to pretend that she was uh, going to a gratitude meeting and write a two-minute a speech on a piece of paper and say exactly that at every meeting for a week and see if anybody noticed. And she did, and nobody noticed. <laughs> um, but you know, there, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous is, is and Bill has, a, has said this over and over and over again, that it's the message from your heart. 
Uh, I lived in New Mexico for seven years sober, and we had a man there who drove cabs. His name was, uh, make it up, this Smitty. And he never changed what he said. Every meeting he would say, hi, everybody, my name is Smitty, and I had a pretty good day today, and I'm just going to pass and let you people talk instead of me. And he said that every meeting. But I could tell by the way he said it how Smitty was doing, and all of us could. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's who you are, how you're responding, who you're dealing with, how you live your life. That's the important thing. What you say at a meeting, you know, I, uh, just to amuse myself about six years, no, it was about three years ago, I sat in meetings, wrote down every cliche that I heard said, and I got up to 500 of them and published them and passed them around Scranton, and I titled it uh, 500 Things to Say at a Meeting to Make It Sound Like You Know What You're Talking About and, avo- <laughs> and Avoid Reading the Big Book. Now, you probably got different cliches here in Cincinnati than we got in Scranton, but here's a couple that just for to, as an example. Think, think, think. You ever heard that one? Have you ever heard, don't think, don't drink, go to meetings? If those two signs are hanging next to each other in a meeting, which one are you going to take? You know? <laughs> but there's some of them that, I, you know, they're all funny, but there, there's a lot of them going around right now that I think are demeaning. I think one of the great things that we have in our that God has given us that other animals on this planet don't have is a brain. It's a gift. And alcoholics, I have discovered, are probably the smartest people in the world because the con you have to go through the last five years of your drinking is something that uh, other human beings out there don't have to do. So rather than say at a meeting that when I get up in my head, I'm in Disneyland, or when I get up in my head, I'm in Jurassic Park, uh, when I get up in my head, I'm behind enemy lines without ammunition, why not give credit to the brain that God gave you? And there's things in the big book that tell me that I'm supposed to. There's a whole cult going around today of a thing, one of them is... Uh, You better learn to live life on life's terms. You better learn to live in the real world. My big book says just the opposite. That if I put God in my life, it says this on page 47 of the the chapter to the agnostics. If I put, if I'm even willing to believe in a power greater than myself, God, once I have made that commitment, I must accept things I never before thought were possible. In other words, if you come here and you've done a good job on yourself for 25 years, there's not one among us that's going to be surprised that you're depressed. (laughs) If you did what I did, the things an alcoholic does are very depressing. Now, if you beat yourself up to the total submission to alcohol, you're going to come in here very depressed. People don't want to talk to you. Your wife doesn't like you. You probably have lost your job. You've lost your car. You probably have a thing around your foot uh, to report to the police. (laughs) This stuff is all kind of depressing. So don't be surprised about it. And so put God in your life and you've got to start accepting things you didn't think were possible, like a good life, happiness, freedom, joy. That sounds pretty good, you know. Uh, it says in the in that fourth chapter, which I think is probably if if you only had one chapter in the big book to read, that's the chapter to read. It says once you get in, in, involved with a, a a God in your life, you can take spiritual flight out of this world. You can enter into the fourth dimension. And if you want to find out what the fourth dimension is, read the book, uh, Emmett Fox's uh, Sermon on the Mount. It tells it's beyond intelligence. 
If you, you know, the, regular, the rest of the world's out there competing with their intelligence. They're taking tests all day long to see who's the smartest. You know, alcoholics don't do that. Uh, once you are in God's world, you were born with everything you need. It was given to you by God. It says that in, in the book Sermon on the Mount, when it talks about the Lord's Prayer, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It suggests there that we were given a talent by God that we're supposed to bring into the world. Mozart found out what it was when he was five years old. And I'm 68 and I'm still looking, but I'm getting closer to it. <laughs> I've had some pretty good clues in the last couple of years, but I had to live to this age to find out what they were. And uh, the book is full of so much optimism that we shouldn't, I don't think, Ignore what it says in the big book. There's some questions. There's about 32 questions in the uh, chapters of the agnostic. But one of them is, and my sponsor used to do this to me, who are you to say there's no God? And then he put my name on it, Bruce. <laughs> now, I could you know, accept that question if they didn't force me to answer it. That's why I can sit in the back of the room at a meeting with 100 people and never participate. Uh, I want to participate in life. I'm glad he asked me that question, because who am I to say there's no God? I'm, I, I can't say there's no God. I found out through my own arrogance about God. I went down to Denver after I went to that first meeting, and through the next year and a half, I had nothing but contempt for AA. I finally lost everything. I lost my business. My family left me. I was sitting in, I don't know if you've ever been out there to Denver, but the, the aisle in the middle of the house, uh, that big old York Street building has about 20 leather chairs in it. And they call it Dead Pecker Row. And it's where all the bums sit. And I sat there for a year and a half, <laughs> snarling at everybody that came into that building. I wasn't going to do what they told me to. And the reason that I stayed sober was people used to wave their finger at me and say, you're going to get drunk. You need a sponsor. Have you read the big book? What step are you working? And all that. And I used to snarl in my mind and smile at him. Uh, someone just told me about that smile. And uh, I finally was at the at the edge of suicide. And there's a story in the third chapter about Fred that makes the comment, and this has turned into a cliche, that my best day sober is better than my worst day drunk. For me, it wasn't that way. The worst time of my life was the year and a half that I spent sitting in that chair defying AA, but I had to get there. And I, I know other people who have to get there. And, and you got to have sympathy for the people who are snarling because if they come to AA, they want help. And so don't discard them too quickly. A newcomer needs to have patient understanding and love and tolerance given to them so that they can get what we've got. Because someone finally walked by me and said, Bruce, how are you? And I gave him my typical smart-ass answer and said, just fine. And this guy was one of the, the spiritual giants of Denver. And uh, I wasn't about to confide to him or anybody else. And he, then he looked at me again, deep into my eyes, and he said, how are you really? And I broke down and cried again at the edge of total, utter despair. I didn't know where I was going to go. And so he told me that he would spend the next few months with me and read the book with me and take me and guide me through the steps and show me what the book was saying. Now, in the end of Dr. Bob's story in the big book, it says that that's what he did. And he did it to pay back the person who took the time to give it to him. And so ever since that man did that to me, I have done that to others.
And when people ask me to sponsor them, I say, I won't. I say, I will take you through the book. And uh, just as someone already pointed out, a lot of people today come out of a rehab center and we have a responsibility to be there as Alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous at the door to get them the moment they come out. Because the transition from a rehab center to Alcoholics Anonymous is where our work is most important. Because someone did this to me. But the very I don't know if you ever saw a movie with uh, Michael Keaton called Clean and Sober, but they took him to the uh, first AA meeting outside of the rehab and they told everybody on the bus that they either had a sponsor when the meeting was over, or they couldn't get back on the bus. Now, that's not very firm sponsorship. Sometimes, uh, you know, the numbers are, are given to, the, to your counselor to prove that you have a number, but unless you use the number, nothing's going to happen. So I have found, in my experience, that if I spend six months with somebody once a week for two hours going through the book, you know, step by step, showing what the prayers are, what the action of the step is, I build relationships with these people some of them get drunk. Some of them are, stay my friends. Some of them find other sponsors. But that, to me, is what my sponsorship exists and how it works for me. And again, I, I know a lot of people do a, a myriad of other uh, other things. But I've not been able to do that that way. That's the way that I do it. And uh, I've done that uh, in Scranton with a lot of people. And uh, I, I, you know, I'm here in Cincinnati, so I can say it. But I keep it, what I do very quiet. I tell the people I don't want them telling anybody else what I'm doing because. They should get sponsors, and everybody should have a sponsor, and I'm not knocking sponsorship. As I said, if you have any question about sponsorship, read the fifth step. But uh, once that man did that to me, my life started to open up. Uh, I found uh, my wife, first wife, and children no longer were a part of my life, so I met another woman, and we went off to New Mexico together, and I joined uh, immediately. I've, I've moved many times in AA, but... For myself, I find that the best thing to do whenever I have to move is to go to an AA meeting the moment I get to the new town because then you've exposed yourself and you're never going to have a drink. Because like someone said, uh, sponsorship is all those people out there you don't know watching you and they'll report to the uh, high monkey mark of AA that you were seen. So expose yourself as an alcoholic. You can't do a better job of that. Go to the biggest meeting in town and, and tell everybody you're an alcoholic. So I did and I went to New Mexico and I was there for seven years. I got in some legal trouble in New Mexico, and uh, I laugh about this because in the uh, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous it says our, our personal adventures before and after make clear those three pertinent ideas. Most of the more important adventures of my life have happened after I got sober. Uh, I was a drone while I was drinking. I used to sit in the bar and just isolate myself from any human contact. So I. Uh, got in uh, this legal battle uh, with a man from Iraq who had moved to uh, Farmington, New Mexico, and he was practicing my profession without a license, and I didn't think that was right. He was from Baghdad. And I called up the attorney general, and he told me to mind my own business. Can you imagine a, a person who's not an alcoholic telling an alcoholic to mind his own business? Uh, I have made a discovery uh, that it has expanded selfishness in all directions because I believe self-righteousness is part of that. So what I did is I wrote a letter to all the architects in the state of New Mexico, all the politicians in the state of New Mexico. I got a copy of this guy's contract where he's signing uh, licenses without a license or he's signing contracts without a license. And the man sued me for four and a half million dollars for libel. You know, and I went to court and I lost. <laughs> 
So, my new wife and I moved to Detroit. <laughs> you know, we went to Detroit because as an architect, I was trying to, uh, I had this four and a half million dollar judgment on me and I, I had to wait out my appeal and I thought, if I was going to disappear in the uh, United States, that Detroit would be the place because no architect in his right mind, I didn't think, would go move into downtown Detroit in the 20th century. But I did. And do you know that the largest Iraqi population in the United States is in Detroit? <laughs> well, you all knew it, but you didn't tell me. And, uh, so they started uh, hounding us, and uh, my wife got a little paranoid, and she took off and left and went to Houston. And then uh, those meetings that I went to in Detroit were really good for me because I learned uh, a lot about the sixth step at those meetings. There are very few people left in downtown Detroit. They all live out in the suburbs, and downtown Detroit is a ghost town. And I went to the meetings you go to there uh, are 100% black. Myself and a nun were the only uh, white people at these meetings, and they were so generous and kind to us. They fed us before the meeting. And uh, there's something that, uh, in the sixth step that says you're entirely ready to have God remove your defects of character. I think a lot of people, including myself, who've got money in the bank again and a car and things are going pretty good, are not looking at that step with any sense of urgency. To be entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character and get yourself out of downtown Detroit is a good motive. And I, I therefore, I left downtown Detroit uh, with a sixth step and moved to New York City to have an urban experience. And... Uh, I'd always come from the country, and I didn't know whether I could handle this or not, you know. And uh, I'd always wanted to do this. My wife was in Houston now, so I thought, why not give it a shot? So I went there, and it's hard. Someone said that today. It's hard. New York is hard. To get that one little room apartment with a toilet behind it cost a lot of money. And AA in New York is, is uh, pretty vibrant. It's, uh, it's sort of like Woody Allen designed it. Uh, there's an awful, <laughs> awful lot of therapy going on there. Uh, I'm not sure they're licensed to do the therapy, but boy, they talk about it at A meetings, and there's an awful lot of hugging and crying and uh, uh, boundaries and all that kind of stuff. Very little talk about the big book. And uh, if you talk about the big book, people think you're obnoxious to people who don't read the big book. And my sponsor told me years ago why. There's, uh, it's again, it's in the fourth chapter. I, I like to quote out of this, so be patient and listen to me. But, uh, if you don't want to listen, you can get up and leave. But I'm going to keep right on talking for two hours here. <laughs> it, it, it says, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't do that to you. It says a lack of power. You ever heard this one? That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power, 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 power. Greater than ourselves. They even put it in italics. Obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? The next line really gets me. That's exactly what this book is about. So how would I dare go out into the world, having read the big book and know what it says in there, and say, I'm powerless over people, places, and things? Because I'm not. I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm a human being with a brain, and I have power given to me by God. I found God deep down inside myself. He gives me power. The 11th step says, in case, uh, just you know, in case you've got your big book with you, it's uh, on page uh, 60, I think. Uh, the 11th step says that I'm going to ask God, uh, after I talked to him for a while and figured out what we ought to do in my life, 
I, what he would have me do, and I'm asking him for the power to carry it out. So if I'm going to do 11 step, I'm going to get some power. But you know what power does to you? It gives you a responsibility. If you've got the power and nobody else has, you've got to go through and stand up for yourself and use it. And so it's a whole lot easier to say I'm powerless over people, places, and things, and I don't have any responsibility in life at all. And that's not true. We all have enormous power. There's power in this room, and you can feel it or else that's why you're here. You know, the power of God is among us. It's, it's, it's all among us, and you can feel it. When we stand up at the end of this meeting, you know, whenever I stop talking, and hold our hands and say the Lord's Prayer, we're going to have a great sense of power because it's flowing from one person to another. If it's in me, like it says in the fourth chapter, you will ultimately find God deep down inside yourself. You know what that means? That it's not only in me, it's in you. So together, all of us have this power. Some of us don't know maybe that it's there. Maybe something's going on in your life right now and you're not aware of it. But it's there. And we have the ability, by communicating to each other with the tolerance that God gives us the ability to be tolerant and forgiving to each other, we can get the best out of everybody by being friends and, and uh that's what sponsorship is, I think, is getting together with each other. I uh, I get in arguments about this. A lot of people will tell me that they worked their first step for three years, and I ask them, have you been drinking for three years? Because to me, I think you drink your first step. Not Sprite. If you're in a good alcoholic, how do you become powerless uh, over alcohol, and how do you find out your life is unmanageable? In the third chapter, it says... If you don't think you're an alcoholic, I'll say this to newcomers, walk across the street and have a drink there at the bar and, and see if you can do some controlled drinking. It says that in the big book. Then I hear them saying to a friend over in the corner, I just talked to that guy over there with a white beard. He told me to go across the street and have a drink. I'm not going to go over there. See, and he's already made a decision not to drink just because I told him to go there. That's a good alcoholic. That'll keep you sober. But everybody has to take their last drink, and nobody knows when your last drink is going to be taken. I didn't know what my last drink was going to be. And I, I certainly wouldn't have put it in a dirty jelly jar. I would have had a, if I was going to have a last drink by my plan, it would have been a good last drink. That was a lousy last drink. I don't even like scotch. I like gin. But so I drank my, you know, I did my first step for 25 years and got here. Immediately, not only am I powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable, but they throw the insult at me that I'm crazy, I'm insane, says so in the second step, that I need a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. Then I get into the third step, and they're going to toss some more insults at me. In order to find this God, they tell me I should read a chapter to the agnostic. And, you know, a lot of Baptists have stood up here today. I'm one too. Even though I'm living now in a town that doesn't know what a Baptist is. But. I don't want to be an agnostic because I don't want to tell somebody that I don't care whether there's a God or not. That's another thing they're trying to put on me, another insult. You know, I'm an agnostic. I am uh, crazy. My life is unmanageable. I'm powerless over alcohol. It gets better. Then I move on to the fourth step and they tell me that I'm full of resentment. It's the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. If I'm an alcoholic, then I'm resentful. Then I, and I've got fear. Ugh. And I'm dishonest. What do you mean I'm dishonest? And at the root of all my trouble is that I'm not selfish. And it doesn't matter whether I'm self-righteous, like in New Mexico with the country of Iraq and taking that war on my own shoulders. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm self-conscious. You know, I'm really too shy to be here. Uh, 
anything that has self on it is bad for me. So I shouldn't be doing that. And so those four character defects that I see in the big book, I'm resentment's the number one offender, kills, uh, destroys more alcoholics than anything else. I do that and find out where I'm fearful because of the lie that's in the third column. If, uh, if I say you injured my self-esteem, my mother told me years ago that sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you, but I didn't ever learn that. And so I'm a grown adult, and if you say something bad about me, I'm going to steam about it. I'm going to be resentful. You hurt my self-esteem. You hurt my ambitions. You talked too long at the meeting and didn't let me talk. You know, uh, my uh, security. I watch you, and you didn't put any money into the dish. Uh huh. I'm the sucker that has to pay all the time. That's all a lie. And it says right there, fear, 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 fear. What are my fears? I'm afraid that I'm a loser. I'm afraid that other people don't like me. I'm afraid that I'm going to be that the insults are true. If someone t- tells me I'm a, I can't say that as it's obscene. Uh, if they, and I pucker my lips, that's stupid. You know, if you insult me and I'm and I'm defensive, I'm defending the fact that I believe you. That's dumb. You can't insult me anymore. And that comes out of the fourth step. The fourth step is an opportunity to put myself back together again. The fifth step has a. The invocation of God is in there because you're inviting God to the meeting. Now, I said there was a prayer in every step. The first step prayer is when you vomit, you say, oh, my God, how did this ever happen to me? That's in the big book. Uh, when he was at the bar, he's pounding on the bar, wondering how to get out of it. The second step prayer, you know, we say all these things and we say them by rote. We don't listen to anything a lot of times. But if you notice the second step prayer, we read it here today. Or it's in how it works. And rarely have we seen a person fail and all that stuff. It says... We ask for his protection and care with complete abandon. Uh, his is a capital H. That means you're, you know you're insane and you're going off looking for a God. And so you need some help in this because you're, you're afraid of what's going to happen to you if you start to believe in God. If I give myself up to the concept of God, that's fearsome. And so I need his protection and care with complete abandon. The action of the second step uh, is, isn't read at meetings when they say how it works. A, B, C. A, we're alcoholic, couldn't manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could relieve us of our alcoholism. And C, a God couldn't would if he saw it. Next line says, being convinced we're at step three. So we're 60 pages into the book before we get to step three. Now we're at step three. And it says, what do we do about this? We first realize that selfishness is what destroyed us. Then it says there's a third step prayer that is suggested that you do it with somebody else. It's a very good idea to follow the suggestions because it says if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, you've got to take these steps. So the we program is not available to you unless you take the steps. How do you like that? You can't be a we. We won't let you in unless you take the steps. Well, that's not true because anybody can be here. But if you take the steps, like Bill did in the hospital bed, and become aware of what they are, you can use the steps to make your life better. So get into the third step and try it sometime. It's a very humbling act to get together with somebody else to say the third step prayer. One of the interesting things about the third step prayer is take away my difficulties in order that victory over the difficulties will prove to other people that this program works. There's victory in Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the victory? Not having difficulty. And how many meetings have you been to where they open the meeting by saying, who's got a problem? And then we have nothing but problems. And we spend the whole hour talking about the problems we've got. And who there took a third step right before the meeting? You know, think about it. Maybe it could have been you. And so maybe you can have a solution to, to this thing there. Then the fourth step 
there's four prayers in the fourth step. And the, the first one is the, uh, about the resentment. And it's, I think, one of the best worded prayers in the book. Because when you're mad at somebody, it says, you pray for the other person by saying, this is a sick man. And it's, you know, I've had to do that. There's people I really detest. This is a sick man. And you can give that all the vigor that acting in school can give you. And you can really hate him with that prayer, but it also says you've got to pray for that guy and what can you do to help him. And if you say that prayer often enough, pretty soon the resentment starts to burn away. Fear. You write the fears down on paper and ask God to remove them and show you what you should be. And then it's got a prayer that they talked about last night that I use. You know, everybody, quite often, a lot of people look at the fourth step and think it's all about sex. And if you look at that page 69, it says they don't care. They don't care what kind of sex you want to participate in. It says they're not going to be arbiters of anybody's sex life. And there's six or there's ten questions in the middle of that page that if if I've got a resentment because I didn't like the bumper sticker in front of me, that has nothing to do with sex, but those questions are still valid in my life. And answering those questions, it says you're supposed to put the answers down on paper. Then ask God what you would set up for as an ideal for your life. What would you like to have this turn out to be instead? I can use that prayer to direct my life because I've come from a place where I want my life to be all it could be with God's help. And I'm finding out new things about it all the time. Fifth step, I ask God to the meeting. Sixth step, there's a six-step prayer. It's, it's the only one in the book that says thank you. You go home after the fifth step, you take the book down off the shelf, and it says you thank God from the bottom of your heart that you know him better and meditate for an hour. That's the first focused meditation that I ever did in my life. Then you go into the seventh step. And the seventh step is a prayer. And it tells you, as you go out from here, meaning you've got to go out and participate in life. The eighth step has a prayer in there that if you're not willing, pray until you are. The ninth step, I pray before every amend I make. Because the people I'm going to talk to are hostile. And I'm frightened. And I'm afraid. And I need to have God assemble me to make an amend that'll be worthwhile and, and be valid. Another thing it says in the big book is that saying sorry isn't what it's all about. We have a constitution to the United States that makes amendments. Not one of the amendments to the constitution to the United States says I'm sorry. <laughs> you got to change it. The uh, one that when they canceled prohibition almost came pretty close to it. Uh, the tenth step has several prayers. I hear it's it's, uh, coming around our neighborhood. I don't know about it, whether it's in Cincinnati or not. A lot of people say that they do the 10th step every night when they go to bed and and look at their day. That's not what it says. That's the 11th step. The 10th step tells me I'm supposed to go through the day when I mistake, promptly admit it. And since the 11th step says I review my day at the end of the day, then I've only got till tonight to do the 10th step. If I don't get the 10th step done by tonight when I go to bed, Guess what? If I still got a resentment when I go to bed tonight about something that happened this morning, well, I won't do it tomorrow, probably the fourth step. But if I keep that resentment for a week and, and you know water it and nurture it, pretty soon I'm going to have to go back and do a fourth step. I do four steps all the time. I, I, I try to discipline myself by going to a retreat at least twice a year and taking a fourth step with me to do a fifth step with a priest who's, who happens to be the uh, running the retreat. Because that, that makes disciplines me to make sure I write my fourth step and get one done. Because my first fourth step didn't do it. I get resentful all the time. I'm an alcoholic. Then the eleventh step has a, a mantra. It has several prayers in there. But the mantra, you know, 
there's a uh, I won't use the word, but there's a, a prayer uh, spiritual theory going around. You pay a thousand dollars and get a, a mantra. We have our own. Thy will be done. Many times during the day, saying Thy will be done. You can hypnotize yourself with that if you like. Thy will be done. That will be done. That will be done. And it works because it brings the God consciousness in the whole program into to play while you're going through your day. And then it, it bet, when you go to bed at night, it says you do think about your day and what you did. Where were you resentful, selfish, dishonest, and afraid? Then the 12th step. That's the one that is such a mystery. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we carry this message to alcoholics. And I'll ask people, what's the message? And it's amazing how few people can answer the question. It's right in there. You know what the message is? I had a spiritual awakening as the result of taking those steps. And my job, my mission, my message to you is that I took the steps and I awoke spiritually from the spiritual experience that I had in jail 28 years ago. God intervened in my life. That was my intervention, not Stuart's uh, uh, Saves His Family. If you've seen that movie, he belonged to seven 12-step programs and he never took a drink. But I drank, and I'm an alcoholic, and I had an intervention by God, I believe, in jail in Boulder that told me not to drink. I could have drunk if I wanted to, but I respect that intervention from God. It was the opportunity of my life. And I have had a spiritual awakening, just like you do in the morning, waking up into a new world every day, God's world, that permits me to be a human being, which is all I told that guy I ever wanted to be. I don't, however, want to be just like you. I want to be me. And I have the freedom now to do that. Uh, this, about four years ago, you know, my, my, I'm alienated from my children. They haven't talked to me for about 20 years. I don't even know where they are. It's by their choice. But God always substitutes something else into your life to fulfill you. Uh, I'm, Getting into something is joyous. Now, I was walking through a mall. That's why I, I, I left this to the end. Uh, and someone came over to me, uh, this was in November, about four years ago, and said, have you ever considered playing Santa Claus? Now, I haven't shaved since I took my last drink. And uh, I never considered playing Santa Claus. I had no idea what this was, but I started it. And now I'm... Uh, he checked me out. There's a firm that, that hires the Santa Clauses for the malls all the way across the United States. And he checks me out because the longer the beard and the whiter the beard, the bigger the mall. And he wanted to make sure I hadn't trimmed my beard this last year. Last year I was in Chicago. And, uh, you know, Macy's may be not far behind, you know. But uh, <laughs> you guys out there with white hair ought to consider this because I was astounded how much money you can make. But it isn't the money. You know, to have, uh, if you have 10,000 children sit on your lap at Christmas and hug you and think you're the man, God, that's joy like I never knew. And uh, uh, I cry a lot. And Paul's here. I was speaking at someone's anniversary once, and I, I started talking about my sponsor. And I broke down and started crying about five minutes into the talk. And I was, once I start crying, I, I can't regain my composure. Paul had to come up and finish for me. And he told me he didn't want to do that today. So I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow on here. You know? 
But, you know, the little boys especially, they'll pull your beard because they expect it to be on elastic and snap. And down, I, I also was in Philadelphia when you're this little kid in Philadelphia where a platform he ran over, pulled my beard and he went over to it and said, Ma, it's a real one! <laughs> and I felt like the real one. And uh, how totally dishonest because, you know, I'm probably not Santa Claus. <laughs> But I'm an alcoholic, and I suffer from the same delusions we all do, you know. And, uh, these steps are very, very simple. And to avoid them, you know, in the beginning of the 12 and 12, it says that the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous is this book, the big book. And it says that it still is. It says that in the beginning of the 12 and 12. And yet, in the communities that I live in right now, with 39 groups, there's not one step meeting in town, there's one nearby, but not in the city, that studies the steps out of the big book. They all study the steps out of the 12 and 12. The 12 and 12 doesn't give you any instructions. Because Bill didn't intend it to be. The instructions are in here. It says in the very beginning, to show other alcoholics precisely how we recovered is the main purpose of this book. So I know it's offensive to say, read the book. And I, I know that people don't uh, like a, a big book thumper and a big book Nazi and a big book this and a big book Bruce. But, um, <laughs> but you know, for maybe if there's, uh, if there's uh, however many hundreds of you that are here, if there's four of you that, that hear me, that's all it takes because it says when one alcoholic works with another. And when I go to meetings in the third chapter, it says there's alcoholics of my type, there's alcoholics of my kind. I can't expect everybody to... There's another line in, the, in working with others that says, if you persist, you will surely find someone desperate enough to listen to what you have to say. <laughs> now, I've been sober 28 years, you know, and if I found four people, that's success. Hey! <laughs> and so... You know, keep at it. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. Don't change it and, and don't turn AA into a bunch of cliches. It's not. This isn't cliches. This is alive. You're alive. We're alive. This room is alive. And the reason we're all feeling this way is because God's here with us. Maybe you don't feel it today, but you will. Keep at it. It's here. And celebrate it. Thanks.